0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And as always in this podcast, I'm traveling across the Carolinas, seeking out some of my favorite sports legends and asking them to tell me some of the stories behind their rise to iconic status. Now, for this episode, we're delighted to be in Denver, North Carolina, inside the Lincoln Charter High School basketball gym. We've met up here with former NC State basketball player Tommy Burleson, who was kind enough to make the drive from Western North Carolina to the gym at my local high school. Burleson won a national championship in 1974 with a Wolfpack team that also included David Thompson and Monty Tau. At more than seven feet tall, Burleson was a mountain of a man who grew up in the mountains of North Carolina. The College All-American also played for the U.S. Olympic team in 1972, and was named the two-time MVP of the ACC tournament. After a seven-year NBA career that ended in 1981, Burleson returned to his home state, and he's been a larger-than-life presence in North Carolina ever since.
1: Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. My privilege to
0: be here. Let's start with your height, since that's the first thing people have probably noticed about you for most of your life. Uh, What was the height you were listed at at NC State, and what was your true height?
1: Well, coming out of high school I was seven one. and of course my idol was a Lou Alcinder, And then of course, artist Gilmore, he's about seven one, but he listed seven two also. So I was just I was anxious for the day for when I would be listed at seven two. And uh, Frank treated me like a, a circus act and uh, he listed me at seven four. when I was measured in the Olympics, I was seven two and a half. Uh, when I was uh, measured in the uh, NBA combine, I was like seven two and a quarter. The first time I ever played against Lou Alcindor as a buck, you know, we are like boxers. We walk up to each other and we measure each other up. We just see who's bigger. And and the first words Lou Alcindor ever said to me was, uh, "You're not seven four. I said, "I know I'm seven two. And then you know, Walton's real uh, uh, ballistic about it. Also, I mean, he he's six eleven. He, he he don't want to be over that seven foot mark. But you know, physically, I'm the, the the tallest I've ever been measured is seven two and a half, and I was in the Olympics. And I just wanted to be uh, there with my icons of artists and, and, and Kareem and stuff. And, of course, I, I, Frank and I did not did not agree on that at all. Frank, you're speaking. Uh, Frank Wheaton, Sports Information Director. He was yeah, – I, I felt he – excuse me, I shouldn't say it, but he, he treated us like a, a circus act. He had Monty, and he had David the High Wire Act, and then he had me as a giant. And uh, I want to be known for my, my ability. I have a 29 inch vertical. I'm still like the third-leading uh, shooting Percentage at NC State at 56.4, David's 56.6. I led my high school in free throw shooting at 87%. Uh, I was the first North Carolina player ever playing the National All-Star game. Uh, that they, back then, you was allowed one postseason All-Star game. So they banned me from the North Carolina All-Star game because I played in the Dapper Dan and the National All-Star game. But, uh, I, I'm, I'm 7-2. Right now, I'm not even 7-2. I'm more like 7-1. Uh, Barely over seven feet, so that's it. Was, it seven was,
0: four was just to make you the tallest player in college basketball. Yeah. All the NC State media guides listed him at seven feet four inches tall, but he was actually seven feet two inches tall. Now, regardless, he became a giant figure to the success of NC State basketball. In 1974, he averaged 18 points, 12 rebounds a game. Ladies and gentlemen. Tom I think I know the answer to this, but let me ask it. Uh were your parents particularly
1: tall? My father was right at you know, he was a Green Beret, when well, I was in the hundred and first of course there in D Day and didn't come out re and became eighty second. But yeah, he was right at six three, you know, a tall six three. My mother was right at six feet. Uh, and then my grandfather had one like six three or six four and another one was six six. So uh, on three sides of my family, they were, they were quite tall people. We've been in Aver County since 1725 or that part of the country. and since Your family up. has been? Yeah. yeah. Well, tell us about growing up. Well, growing up, uh, we was in a very rural area. Uh, of course, agriculture was the dominant a portion of that. Uh, at 10 years old, I was working for 25 cents an hour in the cabbage fields. And then as I got bigger, uh, you know, I went up to like 45 cents an hour. Uh, and then we get into the hay fields, and so I was really, uh, I was really involved in 4-H and FFA, and that was where I, you know, fell in love with NC State when I was down there as a middle school student. Uh, I was doing uh, row, row silage a demonstration for 4-H, and then of course I was a part of the tool team my freshman year that there at Newland and stuff. So I was on the NC State campus. Uh, I was able to see Glassy the Cow for the first time there in front of Reynolds. Of course, that was the corner where Coach Sloan's office was. And uh, uh, as a freshman, I was about 14 years old, and I was about 6'8. Uh, I walked in, my uncle and I walked into Coach Sloan's office and introduced myself. I said, Well, this is Tommy Burleson. I'm from West North Carolina. And uh, Coach Bryan said, Well, he's 6'8, Coach. And Coach says, Well, we've got a ton of 6'8 guys. And he said, But he's only 14. So he came out and he greeted me, and it was really nice and I just sort of fell in love with the school and uh, and just had that dream I could see that that position where I could you know sort of slide in there and, and play center and so explain exactly
0: where that is you're talking about because not everyone who listens to this will know North Carolina geography. Where is Avery County or was it actually newland where hey, do you New,
1: New, Newland' where I'm from it's a uh, uh, you say Grandfather Mountain a lot of people uh, can yeah. identify with that Banner Elk. We're just 22 miles south of Boone, which is Appalachian State. Uh, 55 miles north of of Asheville. The uh, straight the, the, that western part of the state runs at a diagonal, and when you realize Tennessee's north, you drive north to Johnson City, you drive north to Bristol. You know, and we we're like 45 minutes from, you know, Bristol Motor Speedway and stuff like that. Uh, uh, I live like four miles off the Appalachian Trail. Oh yeah, and, and, beautiful country. Up yeah. There. So I mean, we're the very edge of the Blue Ridge, and of course. Mitchell County comes in there, and that's the Smoky Mountains. So you have Mount Mitchell, which is the tallest mountain in the, the Smokies, and of course, Grandfather is the tallest mountain in the Blue Ridge. They called you the Newland Needle.
0: Right? Newland Needle, yeah, that was, and Did you like that nickname?
1: That's fine. I mean, it was it was a, uh, you know, Seattle, uh, and was it '63 or something like that? They had the Space Needle. It was uh, a big part of the, the the World's Fair, and of course, I was long and thin, and and you know, and just uh, and so they. Somebody they took me, depicted me as a needle and, needle and that you know that sort of stuck. Uh, in 1974, as a
0: senior, you helped lead NC State to a national championship. So there were uh, describe the four major personalities on that team to me a little bit yourself, but also Coach Norm Sloan and then David Thompson and Monty Tau How did they mesh personality wise?
1: I guess perfect because we won a national championship. Almost perfect. Well, that'll be a part of my book too. I mean, we were 57 and one over two years, and that's the you know, all undefeated in all ACC play, tournament and regular season. That, that those those records will will probably never be matched. So, Monty was was Coach Sloan's coach on the court. Monty ran ran the offense.
0: Monty was an extension of the coach. You know, he was like the coach on the floor. The guys on the team always said that uh, Coach Sloan was Monty's dad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was unbelievably on un- running the offense. Uh, getting the ball in on a triangle was isolating david on the left on on the right side a lot bill walton in uh in the skywalker documentary he said david thompson was the best player of our era and david i mean he was recorded at like a 44 inch vertical we just complimented each other you know when the double team would come to him he'd throw the ball to me and then when the ball would come into me uh coach Sloan wanted me not to be a black hole coach Sloan, he's, he's in my sophomore year i was like second in the conference in scoring. And, of course, I led the conference in two years in, in rebounding at 14, something like that, 14 and a half rebounds a game. But uh, he said, when the ball comes in, he says, you, you need to keep it moving to make sure that defense works a lot and they can't, you know, just, you know, you don't take a bad shot. So I'd touch the ball two or three, four times during a, a series, and then I'd either get David open or somebody find open for an open shot. Phil Spence was a great player on my backside. Timmy Stoddard was a great player. Both power forwards, it boxed out really well. And when called upon to you know, make a, a, a crucial shot, they were there, you know, they were there in the right place. What I call the passing team, just to step in, you know, and, and drop it in. Mo Rivers, he uh, had led the, the uh, uh, junior college in scoring. And now he's coming in to a team that he's maybe going to get six or eight shots a game. So Mo was sacrificed a lot. Played great defenses, really long arms, really quick. Monty ran the offense. I ran the defense.
0: And what was David's personality like and yours, and how did the two of you do? We,
1: we did well. I mean, we were yeah. big players, i say. In high school, I mean, that's, you know, and David mentions it in his book and I'll mention it in my book. We played in the same high school conference and we wanted to play together. Uh, we're very good friends. We're still great friends today. Uh, he's going to be doing my camp again this year. Uh, we've done it for forty years. He gives a great witness, great testimony. Uh, I mean, he he teaches you know shooting so well, and uh, he he's very calm. David led by example.
0: David uh, being able to to do what he does, uh, you know, I always say, and everybody agrees, you know, this is Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan was there. Um, I guarantee you, Michael Jordan got his inspiration
1: from that man right there. And Monty was that little um, military leader, like Coach Sloan. Coach Sloan was military. He was, he was what I needed. He was very strict on me, you know. And then I, uh, I'd been taught, to, you know, to train hard. He said I was the only seven footer that would show up in the gym an hour, hour fifteen minutes before practice. Start my mic and drills. Start my tipping drills. Start my line drills do my hand-eye coordination drills. Uh, And then I was taught by uh, Bruce Daniels in high school, and Roger Bank was the other coach, and uh, to walk straight to the foul line after practice and start shooting foul shots while you're still tired. Uh, There was no, you know, dissension between the team. We loved each other. We still love each other. We still – I do a little online, like a little sermon every weekend uh, with the team members that are still – Still living and stuff, and really, and and that's you know it's it's yeah, it's cool. it's it's all good. And like I said, but Coach Sloan was a uh, he was adamant about his discipline and stuff. Uh, I was speaking with some people out front, and they asked me about Norm Sloan and what people didn't. They asked me if he lived up to the nickname of Storm Norman, and I always felt like he did that to take some pressure off of us, so that people would be on him instead of young David or Tommy or me during the game. But uh, He he was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, He he would take uh, a prisoner out of the uh, Raleigh prison, bring him around the team every weekend. There were a lot of things that Norm Sloan did uh, that nobody ever knew about. He called me in my, my, uh, well, it was actually my junior year, and he says, says, this team can't lose. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He says, your offense is amazing. He says, we have just too many weapons. He says, I can call on anybody, and we can score at any time. He looked at me and said, I'm going to focus on defense. And that's what he did. I mean, yeah, Dwight Johnson keeps saying, Burleson beats us on the suicides. He's seven feet tall. Seven foot guys can't beat you on suicides. And, and I'd beat him by about 12 feet. And he's just like, "God," So I, I ran one group and David ran the other group. And I was, you know, of course, my I was, again, that was my father, Green Beret. He would get me up at nine years old. And we'd run like anywhere you know, from two to three miles in the morning, come back, do calisthenics. Then, of course, I'd feed the cattle. the the milk cows, and then that afternoon would feed the the 200 head of beef cattle. And, of course, we only had 60 acres of cabbage, row crops, and so. You're you're an athlete. It doesn't
0: have to just be tall. Uh, You mentioned off-air, but uh, tell tell us about your very favorite trophy that you own.
1: Well, my very favorite trophy is uh, I competed in the Western North Carolina Livestock Show uh, for many years. And in my senior year, I had a a really good uh, Angus beef. Uh, he weighed about fourteen hundred pounds, and I showed him, and I and I, I received the showmanship award, but he was the grand champion, and my mother still says that's my favorite trophy, and it probably is because, back then you didn't get participant trophies. You, if you if you if you received a trophy, you received it for for you know for actually yeah. doing doing yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, for accomplishing that feat, and uh, I was just I was tickled to death with my with uh, with my grand champion of beef that year.
0: We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Okay, Tommy, so to go back for a moment before we get deeper into your run in 1974, let's go to 1972 where you had some really remarkable experiences at the Olympics as a 20-year-old. And first of all, let's go with the the most brutal and difficult thing that's probably ever happened in the Olympics. Uh, You happened upon a terrorist attack against the Israeli Olympians, if you'll tell us that story.
1: When German police close in, all the hostages and eight terrorists die during an airport shootout.
0: Palestinian militant group Black September claimed responsibility for the attack, which shocked the world. Millions of viewers watched it unfold on live TV.
1: Well, it, the night it, it happened that they, our, our barracks or, you know, those those apartments have like a second life. And we're, we're staying in like one of the, the, the apartment uh, units. and. We hear like, well, it's gunshots, and I think it's fireworks. And Kevin Joyce says, no, that's gunfire. And then all of a sudden, we don't, we don't, we're all, you know, anxious about what's going on. And then, of course, as we come down to breakfast, we, under, we realize it's under siege. And uh,
0: in the Olympic Village,
1: in the Olympic, oh, in, in, okay. in the Olympic Village. Yeah, our quarters are, I guess you call it barracks. But our quarters are in the Olympic Village. Look right down on the Israeli building and where they were staying. And like I said, we heard the gunfire that night. And then, I, you know, we started looking at pictures and I said, well, I had lunch with him and I had breakfast with him. And we we ate at the same mess hall. And uh, of course, the Canadian guys, their their room was right dead even with the Israelis in the second building. There's a building that was here and I was here, the Israeli building here. So so you want to go back and see it? And I said, sure. I mean, I was that, you know, 20 curious and so. We went back and then there was like cameramen all over the place in these in these rooms, in these athletes' rooms because, I mean, it was had been no security at this time. And they were like, you know, taking pictures of there and you could see the 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 terrorists walking back and forth and the green leisure shoot and stuff like that. I'm going like, you know, and you could see the Uzi in his hands. I'm going like, this is not a very safe place. So I, I left pretty immediately. But then again, of course, all that was cleared out as the German police and, and soldiers began taking over the the, the olympics uh, um, village first day first 24 hours uh we went to mcgraw shot sat around they brought us a box lunch we went back to the uh went back to the uh our our dorm our our barracks or you know it was the department olympic village unit and uh like i said we we're on like the fifth or sixth floor and we looked down on on, on the on the uh, but we were not allowed on the not allowed to go on the balcony this time now so the next day they said, you either have to stay in your room, not do anything, or you can go into Munich and and uh, and and see the town. Well, my girlfriend, uh, Debbie Rice, she was uh, she was there. And so I said, well, I'll go meet her, meet up with her. So I went to her apartment where she her her parents had got her got her room to stay in like a little hostel or something like that. And uh, uh, She and I got together and we went back to the AT&T phone station. They had about 85, I think it was like 85 or 90 telephones, landlines. And so we called our parents. She called her parents. Then we went to the across town to a McDonald's, which was full of Americans. We was eating McDonald's. And then we came back through the Black Forest and I bought a clock for my mother and that kind of stuff, and she bought some stuff for her parents. So I took her back to her, her room, her apartment, her hostel there and uh i headed back to the uh the olympic village and so i i was on the train back to the olympic village and i was in the very last car and the only way i can really explain that this happened was the olympic station was so full now you needed before you only need one piece of id but now you had all needed all three pieces you needed your armband your tag and and your and your id and so uh it was a log jam there at the uh Station probably two or three hundred people in there So what happened is the train the only way I can figure it out. It's stopped short of its marks and when the door opened, uh, It was two Brazilian players their center and a big forward big guys and we were in the last car by ourselves. and when our door opened, We walked out and we could, that there was the barricade with the German soldiers facing the crowd Well, we were behind the crowd and that, the, the, you know, like the double metal doors were right there. And you could see through the glass, and I could see through the parking lot that nobody was really there. And the garage door entrance, entrance to our building was just right there. That's I mean, the way we'd been going in and out the whole time. And I said, do you want to cut across the parking lot? And they went, sure, lead the way. And went across the uh, parking lot. And the German soldiers were coming up to us, and they're speaking in German, and I don't speak speaking the Deutsch. And uh, and so as we're entering the, the garage, uh, a German soldier has come up to me and uh, he says, young man, you're in the wrong place, at the wrong time. I said, what? He said, we're bringing out the hostages right now. So I looked to my left and then the two Brazil players were laying down, face down in the parking lot and they had soldiers with guns in their back. He said, you face that wall, which is the wall of the garage. Uh, where the, the cars coming in the, the driveway, where the cars coming in and out. So I'm facing the wall, and then all of a sudden we start hearing motion behind us. When I start hearing motion, I look, and there's the Israeli terrorist. He steps out from behind the wall, one of the corners, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and it's probably, you know, 30, 35 feet or something like that. And the German soldier takes the gun out of my back, and he sticks it in the back of my head, and he says, "Face the wall now," and I have a, a pretty good idea memory and I can close my eyes and I can see I can see those blemishes in that concrete right now and then as they start walking behind me I can hear the young man a couple of them are crying and so they're they're leaving the uh, security of the The uh, yeah the hostages are leaving the security of the Olympic Village so they you can sort of tell they have their 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 fate sealed so as that small bus is behind us and they're loading them in I can Hear the Arabics snapping commands and, and and i can hear the feet shuffling and i can just hear hear all that that motion behind me uh, but uh, but really I, I wake up at night sometimes just in in in, in, in just in, in fright and in terror dreaming about those young men and because within 45 minutes they're all going to be dead they're going to be blown up in those helicopters
0: in the end, 11 members of the Israeli team were killed, along with one German police officer and five of the Palestinian gunmen. German and Olympic authorities faced bitter criticism for their response to the attack.
1: And I can, I can just, I can just hear their emotion. As I can just, just right now, it just tears me apart. Just as I hear their emotion, I think about their families, and 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 they're just, they're just walking into their death. And. Uh, so what's a say, botched Debar-
0: rescue operation is what happened for those who don't know, right? They they went to these helicopters and ended up their uh, hand grenade was tossed in there.
1: Um, uh, that Yeah, it was. It was. If you watch the uh, if you watch the uh, there is a documentary out there and it's sort of hard to find. But, yeah, the the Germans wanted to do it themselves. They didn't. The Americans and the Russians had sharpshooters and they, they tried to sharpshoot once and they told him he tried it again, they'd blow him up and then. What they did is they had what I can tell is they had these Adidas bags, back then it looked like a square Adidas bag, it was full of hand grenades, and they pulled a pin on one and just threw that whole bag of grenades in there. So if you when you see the when you see the when you see the the documentary, it's the helicopters is ground zero. They ran out. They ran out. Now two of them were killed at the site and then uh Six were six were then of course a part of the hostage release in 1977, when when they, they took the Israeli Israeli uh, uh, airplane, uh, you know their their commercial airplane. They took that they took them hostage and had like 200 some Israelis and they had what 100 and some 160 some uh, political pr- prisoners released. It was a big hostage exchange, and they were part of that.
0: The German soldier that had his gun pressed into the back of your neck was actually doing that for your own good
1: yes oh yeah oh yeah yeah i mean he was he was saying because i had a usa coat on and today i mean that's the first time black september ever showed his ugly face so and today it could have been very i mean if they saw that usa they could have said we want him too," and put him on and put him on the the bus with them i mean i mean absolutely could have been very could have It could have been catastrophic for me, but God was protecting me. God had His angels there.
0: The Olympics continued, which I wonder if they would today in the same situation. But they did after a pause, and not long after that came the gold medal controversial gold medal title game, which you did not play in, and describe why.
1: Describe why? Because I think I told you my girlfriend had came into Olympic Village with me. We'd had supper, and I'd taken her up to the our apartment. And we were on the balcony overlooking Olympic Village, and Coach Bach came out and said, what, what are you doing here with a, a, a female? And I said, well, she's my girlfriend. I said, everybody else has had their girlfriends and their mothers and their sisters and everybody up here. I said, we're just out here standing on the balcony. And he said, well, you're, you're not supposed to do that. And I said, all right. He said, well, I'm not going to tell Coach Iba, and I'm not going to tell Coach Bach. I said, well, that's fine. I appreciate that. But he did. He, he ended up telling them. And so I was – they told me that I, I – I mean, I was lucky. I guess I was – I mean, Coach Iba. I mean, he would send you Him, He'd throw you off a team, kick you off a team for a heartbeat. But uh, the coaches had like four days to think their game plan over. We'd been playing American ball, transition, fast break, blowing everybody out of the water. For some reason, Iba and, and, and went back to his old 1950s basketball, and we went to a, a, a slowdown very methodical, you know, running plays. And we we were down eight points with about five minutes to go, four minutes to go. Of course, you have a 30-second shot clock. And uh, and uh, Kevin Joyce called the time, there was a timeout call, and Kevin Joyce looked at Coach Ivan and he says, Coach, we, we have to start pressing and we have to start pushing the ball. We have to start, you know, running some fast breaks, really, you know, stepping the tempo up. And Coach Ivan says, what? He says, we've got our plan, we're going to stick with you. And, and, and Kevin's going to think, Coach, we're going to run out of time. Tom Anderson chimed in right with Kevin. He says, Coach, we've got to start pressing, putting pressure on the ball and creating turnovers or we're not going. To, the game's going to be over. And then Ivo looked at his number one man, Doug Collins. He looked, at Doug, he looked at Doug and he said, Doug, do you agree with Kevin and Tom? And he, he says, yeah, Coach, we need to, you know, step it up and start, you know, putting pressure on the ball and, and you know, try, try to get some easy baskets. And then I, of course, he was old and I loved him to death, but he just blew up. You boys don't know what you're doing. You want to play the game, you want to coach the game, go out there and you do whatever the heck you want. I'll be sitting over here and you just let me know how it turns out. And I'm going like, ooh, okay. So they went out there, Doug and Tom and Kevin set up the defense and, and we created uh, the uh, turnovers and they, they, they brought the team back. And of course, Dwight Jones had been thrown out were fighting Jim Brewer had a concussion I was basically your only center left on the team
0: but I don't know if you if uh, the listeners know but so I think you described it but you were they had said you can't play because you had brought your girlfriend up on the balcony right. is that they, right. they told you that yeah. Yeah. But, Well, they,
1: well they, they told me that when I went to ask to play Okay. because I, I said I said coach are you going to put me in the game they said no You—you you, you had to, you had an unauthorized person in your room and I went Really, and then of course the next year in '73, when we beat the Russians with David Thompson, Quinn Buckner, uh, uh, Maurice Lucas, and all those guys, the coach from Russia asked me, he said, "Why didn't you play?" I said, "Well, I was being being punished because I had an unauthorized person in the room." And he went, I said, "You might have run 500." Suicides," He said, but I would not have said he said that was a big mistake not playing you. And I said, well, that was my opinion, too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I would agree. Okay. Well, and so to, to move on. But they at the end, America's up by one. Russia's got the ball. You could have been in there uh, helping right. out to, to guard the big guy. Right. And instead, what
1: happened? OK, Uh we came back, of course. And so when Doug shoots his second shot, the buzzer goes off. Well. The coach was trying to wait to the last second, and he didn't realize that you had that human time lapse between that and that and the, and the timeout. So once the ball goes through the hoop, or is in play in Doug's hand, only a player can call timeout. That's the rules, international rules. A coach can't call a timeout, only a player, active player on the court. Well, they dra- grab the ball, take it out, throw it in, game's over. President of FIBA, Federal International Basketball Association. He comes out of the stands. He says, no, put the time back on the clock. So, I said, okay. So, they're putting the time back on the clock. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Ivan. I said, we need to set up our defense. He's going, we're putting this game into protest. Don't leave me alone. Talk to Haskins. I look at Haskins. I said, we need to set up our defense in the front court. I said, we have a one-point lead. We don't need to steal the ball. We have to, we have to just, you know, it, when they make that one pass, that person's got to shoot. With three seconds, they don't have time to make a second pass. I said, We have to need, you know, we have to cheat to the ball wherever they throw the ball and have two people standing in front of them and make them make a, a you know a horrendous shot in order to beat us. Don't you worry, we're handling the game. Go talk to Bach. And I went to John. And I said, John, I said, are we going to set up a, a defense in the front court? And he goes, Don't you worry about anything. You're not playing. You know you're not playing. I said, you've got me and Bobby Jones sitting here on the court. I said, you've got two of the biggest people on your team. Was
0: Bobby in the game at that time? No, Bobby no. wasn't.
1: They didn't put Bobby in the game. Didn't, Bobby, you know, he's just, he's really a poor defensive player because you know he's only first team All NBA eleven years in a row. I mean, right. I'm being very sarcastic here. Bobby, right, Bobby right, right. Jones. That's is why like, I made the whole thing. Yeah, right? Bobby, Defensive Wizard. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, I mean, he was he was key in Philadelphia's championship. I mean, Bobby's an excellent person. And and a, a great friend, and, and he and I, and, and as a teammate, it was just awesome. But I, I was there there campaigning for both of us to get into the game. We set the defense up. and We had four guys in the backcourt. Poor little Jimmy Forbes, who had came in for John Brown, 160 pounds soaking wet, and Jimmy was back there on bailoff. I mean, he's probably got 23 inch biceps, you know, 54, 56 inch chest. I mean, just a monster, I mean, just a monster. And he just on bars Jimmy, catches the ball lays it in uh, as his brother throws him the ball.
0: Now, before the game, we told you the story through Marv Albert's reporting of the U.S. disappointment in 1988 when they settled for bronze. But really, when you look back over the Olympic history of U.S. basketball, the biggest disappointment came in 1972, the greatest controversy perhaps in the history of all organized basketball. Never been a more controversial game than the gold medal contest in Munich in 1972. There the Soviets dealt the Americans their first ever Olympic loss.
1: And then the second time we would went in we had went into the the dressing room and they all come in and told us says well, you will forfeit the game if you don't come back out and play it again. So we had to go back out on the court and play again. It was all it was all kind of chaos.
0: Double Mulligan. Oh my goodness. that's yeah. still hard to believe and so the postscript to that is you didn't take the silver medals right. and didn't go to the medal ceremony either.
1: Right. Everybody 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 but myself, uh, yeah, well, they, we, we we were told to just go out and scatter out and I'll be near the Olympic the Olympic arena uh, stadium and 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 we did. And of course the, the big thing shows our medals laying there on the on the on the stand and they call it the worst sportsmanship in history. Would you
0: take that silver medal today?
1: Uh, no, because the teammates we, we, we voted to the it is either all for one and one for all. So uh, three guys have it in their wheels; they're not to accept it. So, I really don't want it. You know, Tom McMillan's tried to do different things with it. Uh, he wants it uh, returned to the uh, Naismith Hall of Fame and put it in their archives. You know, you know, stored, stored away instead of, instead of having it in Geneva. There's only seven left right now. Uh, five of them are missing. Who knows where they are? Probably some private collection somewhere. I don't know, but. Uh,
0: that's interesting,
1: but I, yeah. I, I, no, I, I really don't want it. I mean, it, you know, I, like saying, it's you know, there's not one for everybody.
0: We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. The uh, 1974 ACC Championship Game is is commonly regarded as the best game ever played in the conference. And it was, I think, in March, but I was there at uh, this extraordinary reunion where you spoke. Six players spoke overall: three from NC State, three from Maryland. And uh, we'll listen to what you said there for a moment.
1: It was more than a dogfight. We went out at each other, knowing that, you know, we're on national TV, and, and and people. That's what. Do uh, you think we have egos? Uh, <laughs> You you think we think we maybe alpha males? Uh, Yeah, I mean we're out here playing a game with our full hearts and our passion, and we're in front of a a national televised uh, audience. So every game was intense. Every game was was just unbelievable, and 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 it was always one thing that stood out in my mind. We had (laughs) the.
0: So, what made that nineteen seventy four ACC championship game so special? In your estimation, all these years later, people still remember it.
1: There was a whole lot going on there. I mean, we were put on probation. My junior year, David, sophomore year, twenty seven and 0 we went undefeated in the conference and won the ACC ACC tournament. Then, of course, in seventy three seventy four season, we go undefeated in the conference and then we go uh, and we win the, and win the tournament. So that. Gives us a berth in the NCAA. At that time, there was only 25 berths in the NCAA. That game is what um, prompted the NCAA to go to a, a bigger, a bigger field. At that time, the ACC the only one had a tournament, uh, a, a tournament, a conference tournament that would determine the you know the NCAA uh, representative. So they went from 25 to 32, and they said, "Wow, what a cash cow." And then they went from 32 to 42, 42, 48, 48 to 64. Now it's 68 uh, because of television rights and everything. So that was the game that planted the seed in the mind of NCAA that they needed to expand the field. So that was that was the big part of it. And, and then again, uh, Maryland was just trying to beat us. I mean, we, you know, we, we're that team. It's that we're the only team in ACC history to go undefeated in conference and tournament play two year in a, two years in a row. You know. Sorry about that, Dukes. but you don't have that one. You got most of them, but you don't have that one. And I don't think you're going to get it. I don't think you're going to get it. That's
0: pretty hard to do. Yeah. Yes. And it was the score was 103 to 100. Uh, without a shot clock, without a three-point uh, shot, how did that happen?
1: Well, the transition. Uh, Maryland had a lot of great athletes, and they like to score. And we had a lot of great athletes, and we like to score. So it was, it was a lot of transitioning up and down, and the game was really at a at – a, at a, a fever pitch, I guess, is a good way to put it. And uh, uh, of course, we went into overtime. And during the overtime, I'm looking down at the the, the Maryland bench and I'm seeing Lynn Elmore pop the ammonia. And Tom McMillan's got his hands on his knees and he's bent over at the way. So, I mean, he's showing to, that he's tired. And I'm going, and I'm looking at Coach Sloan going, like, yep, the coach is going, he says, we got to pull this out. I said, don't worry, Coach, we've got this. I said, we've got it. Really, I'd get into a situation where the game would almost go into slow motion. I mean, if you'll watch that game, I'm at every play. I was anticipating everything. Uh, everybody said, man, he's quick for for, you know, being seven two. And I said, well, you know, it's called about anticipation. If you wait and react, you're slow. But if you see the motion, you see the passing lane. I mean, ball's going from a point A to B. I mean, it's not it's not rocket science. It's you know, a lot of geometry in, uh, in, in basketball. And so I'm I'm sitting there, and I'm cheating, I'm cheating, I'm cheating. And so once it gets on his fingertips, I'm gone because I know he can't bring that ball back.
0: Do you think that was the best game you ever played, 38 points, 13 rebounds? You were the MVP of the ACC tournament.
1: Uh, I I would say, yeah, it's definitely the best game. I mean, that game meant the most. And really, you know, and David sets that up. I mean, David has 41 in College Park. Or, no, 39 in College Park, 41 in Raleigh. So he's only averaging 40 points a game. So uh, Coach Dressel saying, we can't let David beat us. We can't let David beat.
0: You know, it was just putting big guys on him too quick, smaller guys on him and jump too high. Um, and then finally in the ACC tournament, decided, okay, I, I was going to halfway play. Wherever David was, I would point to him. but. You know, now I allowed Tom to be able to get where he wanted to go, and, and he didn't miss. So everything we tried just didn't seem to work.
1: That's what I mentioned, that, you know, they had too many weapons, too many options. Well, Lynn Elmore, he's, you know, I love Lenny, and we're good buddies. But he's got this mental, mental psychology that, that he's the next Lou Alcindor. Well, he's 6'9". Lenny's a great power forward, tremendous player, but 6'9", can't guard 7'2". I mean, I had a, I had a drop step. Uh, oh man, when I when I learned when I learned to use my drop step, it was about it was a little over five feet. I mean, I was like a kid in the candy store. I get you get you going one way, and I just drop that my big long leg behind you. I mean, Bo Ellis. I mean, the Marquette game. I score eight of our first eleven points. Mm.
0: That was a was that the national championship national game? Championship yeah, because you beat Monty. UCLA in the semis actually oh,
1: yeah. that year. Yeah, yeah, and Monty and Monty looks at me and he goes. I look at Monty. I said, just keep bringing it in to me. I said until they make some adjustment he said no i said what he said said tom every other people have to shoot the ball he says you can't be all about you and i was sort of disappointed at the moment but monty made the right money always made the right decision keep right. them all involved and yeah keep happy keep, yeah, keep, yeah, yeah. yeah keep everybody involved don't you know just don't give it to me he said he said no you said he said no time he said if i need you i'll come back to you
0: well the toughest uh game in that final four after you beat maryland was against ucla in the oh, wow. in the semis unbelievable game another you played two classics in the matter of weeks bill walton was on the other team ucla had won seven straight ncaa titles that is hard to believe these days anyone could could win three straight they'd won seven so talk about your battle with walton in that game
1: well the you know that was our that was our primary goal was to beat ucla and dethrone that you know that wooden dynasty uh Every Western sports writer has ever, ever, uh, rated the teams. We're like sixth or seventh. And that 72 73 team uh, of, of Walton, Wilkes, Myers, Washington, Tommy Curtis, Regley, they're number one. That's the stinking team we beat. We beat them. And, and, uh, and, and so, I mean, and Walt said it was, and of course, in his documentary, it's like him, it was the most, uh, uh, a depressing day of my life. As you know, I, you know we lost our respect. We were we all started digging the tea and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going like, Yeah, you certainly did. We beat you. <laughs> but uh, as, as but we have David Thompson. You have Monty Tao, You have Tim Sauer. You have Phil Spence. You have Mo Rivers. We have Mark Moeller Craig Kuzma, Steve News, Craig. Gall- we, have, we have just a tremendous Smitty. Uh, you know, Mike Burma. All the guys. You know coming off the bench. And there was, I mean, we had a, we had a top 10 team, you know, was on the bench. I mean, uh, I mean, we were just full of talent, but the UCLA game, uh, yeah, it took double overtime, but, and and, and Walton, and I, and I give him his, his credit. And all hell is going to break loose here in about 12 seconds to so hit them both. We're going to have a new national champion. Now he was coached by John Wood. I could jump higher in Walton had a better field goal percentage, percentage than Walton. I shot three throws better than Walton. And every time we played man or, or heads up, my team won. I mean, we we won that, the CPAC trophy six to eight, you know, six to two and eight games we played them in our particular Division and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, Larry Bird, when Walton starts bragging, Larry goes, Burley, ate your lunch every time you played him. Because that was – we were but the didn't icons didn't they beat
0: of, you in the regular season that year?
1: Well, yeah, they did. That game was getting us ready for the final game. God knew nothing's perfect in God's eyes. So that's the only loss we have in two years. 57-51. Yes. And if we beat UCLA, and I hate to say this, if we beat UCLA in St. Louis, John Wooden is a great coach, and he's going to come in there with a different game plan against us. And, And so they come in there overconfident, thinking that they could have beat us like they did in St. Louis. When they were just lucky, well, while they were fortunate to win, God was getting us ready for that final game because God knew how that cycle was going to come around. And, and in order to win the big game, we had to lose that game. You have to learn from your experiences.
0: We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. You are writing a book you've mentioned. Uh, have you got a title for it yet? Uh, Play on. Play on. Nice. I like it. That is going to be a wonderful read. I know you can't encapsulate 40 years in five minutes, but give an idea of what you, after basketball was over, what you've done
1: with your life. So I rededicated my life uh, on June 23rd, 1982 to Jesus Christ. And uh, I got married. Uh, Danny and I have three sons seeing that first boy's face and realizing that he's depending on me for to eat, shelter and everything. That is a, a moment that you realize that people are, are, are relying on you. So, uh, of course, I went back with my little hardware store. We worked there for a while. Uh, I ended up selling it out to, you know, the family business uh, to my uncle. And then um, I was able to get a job as a building inspector they went from building inspector to the county planner. I was county planner for 26 years. And, uh, and this is
0: back in your is hometown?
1: A, hometown in Newland, Avery County, mm-hmm. Grandfather Mountain, Beach Mountain. Of course, Lee's McCrae's there. Uh, we're just south of Boone, Appalachian State.
0: Gorgeous. I can see why you'd want to return there, you know? Yeah. Even after you've seen a lot of the world.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, it's a, you know, life after basketball. That's part of the big part of the book. I mean, there's there's so many stories I can tell that where we're, we're players implode once their basketball career is over they don't know what to do i mean it's you know you you put so much emphasis and so much relying you're relying on basketball so much that once you you know now you're now you have to go back to your education and your skills and what you what you have you know how you prepared yourself for life after basketball and of course that's why i've chosen uh, the, the title play on
0: that's wonderful uh advice and so true uh it's just been such a pleasure talking with you today, Tommy. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Well, thank you, Scott. I, I, I appreciate you wanting to, you know, really have some of those great moments with us and with me, and and I, like I say the team. I was on a great team, had great coaches, and uh, you know, it's all about team sports. And, uh, and then again, I, you know, in life, there's politics and and, and there's things that goes on that you really don't want to want to want to be about the ugly part, but. Uh, it happens, you know? And then like I say, I was, I was so involved between the Munich and and, and then, of course, uh, the way my NBA my career uh, uh, ended up and stuff and all that. But God had a plan for me and had a job waiting for me, had a, a life waiting for me. Uh, I've had my camp for 40 years now. David Thompson is going to be back. Uh, I think Phil Ford's coming this year. And we teach fundamentals. And there's fundamentals in everything you do, everything from education to basketball you know, to, you know, to live your life and, and, and how you treat people and, and how you want to be treated. So it's been my privilege and I, I thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. That's Tommy Burleson. I'm Scott Fowler and this is Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Thanks so much for listening to Sports Legends of the Carolinas, a production of the Charlotte Observer. This show is produced by Lou May Ali Sally, Jeff Seiner, and Cotta Stevens. The sports editor of the Charlotte Observer is Lydia Craver. And the executive editor is Raina Cash. Remember, you'll find much more about this interview and about all of our guests, including Steph Curry, Roy Williams, Dale Earnhardt Jr., and Don Staley, in our Sports Legends book. Pre-order your copy now at sportslegendsbook.com. For lots more sports content and to continue supporting this kind of work, please visit charlotteobserver.com and consider a digital subscription and connect with me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fowler or email at sfowler at charlotteobserver.com. See you next time.